welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host, Matt Kennedy. Uh, we are recording, as, as usual, at Meltdown Comics and Collectibles. We are uh, one of the podcasts on the Meltdown Podcasting Network, along with other great shows like Kind of Dating and Two Packs a Week and um, you know, History of the Batman and a lot of other really great, uh, vibrant shows, including the Meltcast 2.0. So... Um, Really, uh, this show is going to be my tribute to Bernie Wrightson, uh, who just passed away um, uh, on uh, on Saturday. Um, as we record this, it is today is uh, Sunday, um, March nineteenth. Uh, so this is really really fresh, and um, I'm 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 very very um, just completely bummed out because. I'm not sure if I've spoken about this before, but the the first comics that um, I started buying when I got, you know, when I became a kind of official collector of comics, and so not necessarily the stuff I was buying on the newsstand, which um, in the 70s was you were kind of relegated to whatever they decided to bring in, and so a lot of stuff, especially horror, was not being, um, not making it to the the newsstand racks. So um, sometimes you you pick up maybe a Hulk comic uh, one month and the next month they wouldn't have Hulk at all. They didn't order it. Um, so it was kind of impossible to follow continuity in the 70s. And I think it wasn't until the explosion of comic book shops in the 90s that the companies like DC and Marvel even really started to think about continuity uh, in a grand way uh, because they understood the problems that were at the newsstand. But um, when I did discover that there were comic shops after finding a, um, a Werewolf by Night number 32 in my closet, which is the first appearance of uh, Moon Knight, along with some other comics I had, I had held over from when I was uh, much younger. The first stuff I bought were in three for dollar bins, and I was drawn to these incredible covers that uh, Bernie Wrightson had had drawn. Um, you know, these are the covers to House of Secrets and um, House of Mystery and Unexpected, and then Tales of the Unexpected, and, and I think even Tower of Shadows and. And that type of thing. But he would occasionally also do superhero covers. And um, I do remember buying a Jonah Hex that had a Wrightson cover. And um, I remember buying some um, Superman Batman annual and stuff like that. And I think, you know, it's, um, it's really strange to be, you know, kind of talking about... Um, you know this this type of thing so so uh, not having processed it yet and it's it is a deep wound um and i'm probably going to be a little bit off of my continuity and i just mentioned a superman batman comic that i realized came out you know not too long ago but he had done some um some covers with superheroes and i remember buying those and the first comic that i ever paid above cover price for was um a twisted tales number 2 which is this um kind of incredibly gory cover of a guy chasing some kids across a field and it's it's a strange point of view angle where he seems to have this rope that's running through the mouths and eye sockets and necks of these severed heads that he's obviously collecting and um i was shown that from the guys at the comic shop that i walked into which was a corner bookstore in downtown lynn massachusetts which would become comics legends and lore shortly thereafter 
and uh, one of the guys that worked at that shop was, uh, or was at least hanging around that shop a lot. He had worked there, I think, when he was younger, was uh, Tom Stagoski, who was a comic book creator in his own right, and actually got to work with Bernie um, on the, uh, the Punisher as part of the Marvel Knights line in the, in the 90s. And I remember being extremely psyched for, for Snaggy about that when, uh, when um, we got word that that was going to happen. And, you know, there were interesting highlights in, um, in and about his career because Bernie was, you know, known as the master of the macabre and had done, you know, the creep show trade paperback with Stephen King. And he's sort of the best guy to do that because his style was, was in some ways very much a tribute to ghastly Graham Ingalls, but was also very much rooted in classic illustration chops. And of course, when you saw the Frankenstein that he had been working on from the early seventies, uh, into the the mid to late seventies when it was finally published in nineteen seventy eight originally, these incredible black and white um, full plate illustrations, uh, many of which were just showcased at the Guillermo del Toro exhibition at Home with Monsters. Uh, you see that he had a kind of Gust of Dore um, aspect to his work, and not only was Bernie Wrightson, you know, the gold standard in illustration. He was also just an incredibly cool guy, and I, I had the the great uh, fortune to have met him a couple of times um, at uh, San Diego Comic Con in the at first in the early '90s, and I brought with me my copy of the Studio, which was the Dragon Dream kind of large graphic format volume of the four guys that shared a studio together, uh, being Bernie Wrightson, Jeff Jones, Barry Windsor Smith, and Mike Kaluta. Um, all of whom had worked on um, on titles uh, at the same time in the same companies and uh, sometimes together. You know, the, the fill-in issue in the Barry Windsor Smith Conan run is a Bernie Wrightson issue. And, of course, Bernie and, and Kaluta would often be in the same issues of House of, of, um, House of Mystery and even things like Chamber of Darkness and um, some of the, the Marvel horror titles that were coming out in the early 90s, uh, in the early 70s. And I remember um, after there being a bit of an absence of his work because he was working so diligently on um, more uh, fine art type of, of illustration and, and on films. And certainly you would see his work in magazines, um, you know, the, the Warren publications, the Creepies and Eries and Vampirellas. And, and, um, and I think some of the ones, they even did one shots uh, within those titles that collected some of his stories that he had done uh, with Bruce Jones in the early 70s. You would also um, you know, see him in heavy metal, and he did Captain Stern. And, of course, that was one of the the serialized stories in, in heavy metal magazine that were brought over to the heavy metal film. So you've got Bernie Wrightson, Richard Corbin, and Mobius, um, you know, primarily um, having their work utilized for the film. And it's kind of um, impossible to compare... Um, what his, how different his work was in the marketplace, that there was really nobody who, who drew like Bernie Wrightson unless somebody was doing a Bernie Wrightson imitation. And by the late 80s, you had, um, you know, Kelly Jones was, was doing his best Bernie Wrightson on those early issues of Sandman and uh, to a much lesser degree. And, and, and um, I'll give him credit for, for bringing a certain amount of originality to it as well. Sam Keith, who also was working on Sandman, um, when he brought that style and kind of added a little bit more of a, a street art graffiti style to Max. You can see the influence, but um, it's still not Bernie Wrightson. And 
in the late 80s, there were a couple of Marvel graphic novels that, um, that seemed very unlikely on the face of them to, um, to be a good fit for Bernie Wrightson. Um, there was a Spider-Man graphic novel, and there was a, a team-up of um, the Hulk and the Thing, which is sort of reminiscent of the old Marvel 2-in-1s, and uh, Marvel 2-in-1 had been canceled years earlier, you know, being kind of a, a team-up vehicle for the Thing. And what's amazing about these is that they were incredibly perfect for Bernie Wrightson, that if you think about Spider-Man and the webbing and um, the type of Cthuloid monsters that you could have um, this this superhero fight, who better than Bernie Wrightson to capture that? And I remember loving that um, that Spider-Man graphic novel, but then you know, um, perhaps my favorite comic book work, um, maybe even ever from Bernie, is his work with Jim Starlin on that Hulk and um, Thing team-up in the Marvel graphic novel. It's called The Big Change. The Spider-Man was called Hookie, if I, if I recall correctly. And um, The Big Change is just, it's hilarious. Um, you know, it's sort of a, a perfect use of, you know, these two kind of really giant guys, um, neither of whom is really particularly very intelligent, and yet able to use their wits um, in taking on um, insurmountable, insurmountable foes. And it was such a different thing because it was humorous, um, you know, that it, it was really, really special among his, his oeuvre, if you will. And um, the, the pencils are just incredible, and the color in those were fantastic as well. I think those were done by Michelle, Michelle Wrightson uh, back in the day. And um, after that, he was doing things like um, Batman the Cult, which is sort of like a, a follow-up to, for DC to their History of the DC Universe using that prestige format. And um, Bernie Wrightson was almost doing a kind of Frank Miller imitation in that and then doing these incredible very Bernie Wrightson covers and of course you know everybody loved when when Bernie would do Batman because you know what a great fit you know uh between um Neil Adams run with the with the man bat in the in detective comics and Batman comics um these kind of more supernatural type uh villains just seemed like such a great fit for the guys that were really specialized in horror and um, really allowed uh, Bernie's pencils to shine in getting catching the fabric and the draping of, of the cape in a really gothic way uh, on, on Batman. But, um, you know, some of the other stuff that I remember, and, and as I said, you know, those, those first comics that I bought were three for a dollar House of Mystery and House of Secrets comics, and I would just pour through these boxes back in the day when comic shops were these kind of dumpy places that were just filled with long boxes of comics. Um, even if they were very well organized and bagged and boarded, there would be sections that weren't and some of the less expensive stuff. And you'd in, in those three for dollar bins, you'd also find a lot of gold key comics and, um, you know, kind of a lot of throwaway titles, uh, titles that really hadn't succeeded. Now some of those titles would be worth hundreds of dollars. Um, and not just the, the early 70s Marvel horror stuff, which had gone largely out of favor by the, the mid-80s. But um, just all kinds of uh, treasures that you could, you could dig through. And, and I would go through and I would pull out stuff, you know, based on the cover. Uh, not knowing much about the hobby at that point. Not identifying writers' names really at all yet. And so I, you'd see that. You'd see Wrightson written in the lower right-hand corner generally. 
and um, I, I got used to seeing other people whose stuff I liked too. Mike Kaluta, to me, looked a little bit like Wrightson in some of those covers, and I became a huge fan of his, and I started asking the guys uh, at that comic shop if there was anything else that this Bernie Wrightson guy was, this Wrightson guy, I don't, I don't think I knew his first name yet, uh, was working on, and they told me that, sure, he had done some some covers recently and that they were in these the other side of the shop in the bagged and boarded long boxes, and that's where I picked up that Twisted Tales number two. And disappointingly, of course, there was no Bernie Wrightson interior work in that, so I really did just buy it for the cover. And um, one of the other publications that Pacific Comics was putting out at that time with Twisted Tales was Alien Worlds, and that's where I discovered via an ad on the back of that comic, um, Dave Stevens. And so I had my first long box that I was able to fill by collecting comics was primarily Dave Stevens and Bernie Wrightson, but the lion's share was was Bernie Wrightson. Um, and I would find myself, when I would go to the, the conventions back in those days, sometimes they were little more than a couple of vendors that had sold comics at swap meets, uh, the way that you might um, find record uh, retailers now at swap meets like the Rose Bowl, the Pasadena City College, or um, you know, there's tons of them in Vegas and and places across the country. But um, you know, back in those days, there there weren't a lot of guys that weren't carrying just kind of what was hot. But there were some, and oftentimes there were guys that maybe used to own comic shops or had thought about owning comic shops, and so they had relatively good taste. And you could come across some of the fanzines of that era. And one of the fanzines that um, that I bought at I think I bought it at BossCon 86, and I don't remember the title of the fan scene, but it had this amazing cover that um, Bernie had drawn of Leatherface from, and it's the scene in Texas Chainsaw Massacre where the girl runs out and he runs outside, grabs her and pulls her up the stairs, um, brings her into the house and basically hangs her on a meat hook. But it's that sequence where he's just grabbed her and her legs are off the ground, and you can see this giant hulking maniac you know with a butcher knife in his hand um pulling this this um this poor hapless young girl into uh, to her doom and he was able to capture that entire sequence the motion of that entire sequence in a single frame and and illustrate that perfectly and capture you know the abject horror of the situation i believe it was from the same year as the film i think it was from 1974 and i remember talking to bernie about it um at um I don't think it was at Comic-Con. I think I talked to him about it years later at uh, at a shop called Dark Delicacies in, in Burbank, um, which was then on Burbank uh, Boulevard, I think is now in Magnolia. And there's a whole great little neighborhood of horror-centric uh, shops. And, um, and he was just a really wonderful guy, just a really welcoming, friendly guy, and sort of unaffected by by fandom you know he was gracious if if he was affected at all it was like he was kind of an aw shucks kind of guy and um never put on airs and certainly didn't um you know um make anybody feel that he understood his standing um and the respect that so many of us had for him but i know that several of the guys that were at that that first comic book shop in lynn massachusetts um, could attest that Bernie Wrightson had a huge following in Massachusetts. And, you know, as a guy growing up one town over from Salem and having been born there in the City of Witches and the great, you know, um, history of 
horror, real life horror that um, is part of that uh, American Gothic heritage, um, maybe we were perhaps drawn a little bit more to the horror stuff than other people. But, you know, Bernie Wrightson was also himself uh, from a suburb of uh, Baltimore. And we know, of course, that uh, Edgar Allan Poe lived for uh, a very long time in in around Virginia in the suburbs of of Baltimore himself. And so you, you kind of feel like maybe there are certain geographical locations that draw kind of a type. Um, the town that uh, Bernie was from is called Dundalk. And, um, you know, a few years back, um, and you can look for this online, there was a, a great um, comic-centric, uh, you know, local artist makes good type of story done where someone went back and took Bernie to his hometown and they went and took pictures of the places that he grew up and where he used to go and just walk around the neighborhood. And it turned out that his familial home was actually for sale. And uh, he and his wife sort of joked, oh, hey, maybe we'll buy my, my family house back. Um, and, you know, Wrightson was one of those guys that came from that generation where a lot of people who were just about to become famous making movies were reading those comics. And as, of course, the co-creator of Swamp Thing, um, you know, people like Steve Bissett had immense respect for Bernie Wrightson and felt awed by the fact that they were going to be working on a reboot of a series that had such an incredible penciler connected to it. Because Wrightson did the entire run of Swamp Thing in the 70s. He was the, the only artist that illustrated it. And there's that amazing, um, I think it's issue, it's either issue 7 or issue 10. I think it's, I think it's issue 7, um, where Batman meets, meets Swamp Thing. And during the Alan Moore run, they got to have the rematch. And it was a rematch that was, you know, 15 years in the making in the comic world. And again, you had these guys that were primarily known for their horror work, um, making this, uh, this matchup come about. And I'm sure that Steve and, um, and John and, and, and Rick Veach and a lot of the guys that were at the, the Kubert school, um, viewed Bernie Wrightson as, as much of a kind of dad, uh, to their illustrative styles, um, as Kubert himself, and and to them possibly even more important um having grown up you know in the doing undergrounds and the undergrounds being much more um stylistically influenced by horror comics and ec and you know the stuff that inspired bernie wrightson and when the when eclipse were doing the seduction of the innocent um 3d comics they hired the two best cover guys that could capture that they they hired bernie wrightson and they hired dave stevens um, two very different takes and you know um, obviously I thought enough of the Dave Stevens one that I have it tattooed on me but um, you know Wrightson's work was just in a class by itself and his absence in the industry is is something that is is impossible to fill um, so again as I say this is this is very fresh um, and is very fresh wound and when I found out yesterday, uh, I read it on Bill Sienkiewicz's uh, Facebook page. And it just, uh, I immediately became glassy-eyed and, and just nostalgic about those first comics that I bought and what an incredible um, gateway drug 
Bernie Wrightson was for for comic fandom and appreciation. And in an era where you couldn't find stuff online, you had to kind of get out in the world and explore it and find it. Um, he gave you something that united you when you walked into another comic shop and you asked somebody, "Oh, hey man, I'm looking for um, you know these comics here," and and they may not get it right off the bat. You know, you did pour through the Overstreet Guide, and sometimes they would mention if, if uh, Wrightson had done it. Other times you'd trade information with other people or you had other friends that collected the same stuff, and you'd make these little checklists. And checklists were a really big part of early fandom, and you know, Roy Thomas was kind of the first guy to put together checklists as, as part of the, the first wave of comic book fandom um, you know, in the, in the late 50s and early 60s before he would start working for Marvel. And it was his checklist that actually got him hired at Marvel. That they were familiar with this, this little um, mimeographed newsletter that was stapled in the corner that he was sending out. And when you'd be looking for things on your own checklist, and it was all Bernie Wrights and stuff, nine times out of ten, after two or three titles, the guy behind the counter would would realize what you were looking for, and he knew other stuff that maybe wasn't on your list. And uh, they'd go to box, they'd go to these boxes in the back and they'd pull it out like, oh yeah, you know, I came across this last week and it might be, you know, a fanzine or it might be um, an obscure um, magazine, horror magazine, or just like uh, something in the middle of a run where not always were the interior artists credited in uh, anthology titles. So um, certainly with Charlton and places like that, uh, you didn't always know what was in there, but if you had the right eye, you could find it if you were looking for it. And I think, um, you know, I remember when, as, as an X-Men fan, when I kind of graduated on to um, the more lauded comics, or the more popular comics like X-Men and Cerebus and American Flag and Grimjack, that um, they did that Heroes for Hope special. It was kind of, it was a, you know, and DC did a Heroes Against Hunger, and Bernie Wrightson's in both of those. So he has a, a segment in both of those um, charitable-funded comics where portions of the proceeds went to, I think, USA for Africa or a charity of, the, of that, that time, which was very much in the zeitgeist, you know, in, in the mid-'80s, and bought that brand new off the newsstand, you know, Heroes for Hope. And immediately turning through to to find where the rights and pages were because he was advertised as having done work in it. And you could tell immediately just which one it was. And it was kind of horror-themed and just incredible work. So, um, you know, we we say a, a, a very fond and a, a very uh, uncomfortable farewell to someone who... I think for most people was one of the best people to ever work in comics, not just as an illustrator, but just as a really nice guy who took a lot of people under his wing and would work with young creators. And, um, you know, I think about some of those amazing Warren publication stories, you know, whether it's Jennifer, which got turned into an episode of Masters of Horror, um, or, you know, the this great sci-fi story, and it's written in rhyme and you know there's a guy and he's he's in space and he thinks that he's abandoned and he finally uh realizes that he's not alone and in fact that the other person on the planet is this beautiful young woman and the final line is damnation i'd ran out of air and that was uh one of those kind of weird quotes that uh, a lot of us that back in uh the suburbs of boston would would 
quote, you know, the way that some people quote Monty Python. And there's so many of that with, with Wrightson's work. And there's, there's so many people that are, that have that, that favorite piece and they, they can, they just know it's their favorite piece. And, you know, sometimes it's, you know, it's witching hour or sometimes it's a Frankenstein drawing and sometimes it's, you know, a page from, you know, an interior of, a, um, you know, an unusual superhero title that he was picking up work for hire, you know, Submariner where he would ink, um, another artist or, um, you know, some of the, he did an incredible Hulk cover, you know, in the seventies and Werewolf by Night and, um, Doctor Strange, the great Doctor Strange actual special edition that has this amazing wraparound cover, which has turned into a print at a certain point. Um, and I actually gave one to Howard Hallis, um, found out he already had one. Um, you know, Howard being a huge Doctor Strange collector. Um, and of course he had taken that forward into the eighties and in the nineties, um, working a lot with Steve Niles, uh, who had sort of revived the horror comic through his 30 days and night. And they were working on quite a few titles together for a while. And, um, prior to that, of course, was in Clive Barker's Hellraiser number one, which was sort of the kind of first horror anthology comic to get released in years. And certainly, you know, House of Mystery had been canceled at that point. So, there we have it. I, um, I, if you have not heard, and this is the way you're finding out, I apologize, that, um, that Bernie Wrightson has passed. It has been all over, um, most of the social media at this point, and I don't think it's, it's going to catch you by surprise, uh, hearing it here, but, um, you know, it's, uh, it's a sad thing, and it gives me an opportunity to go back and look at all that amazing work that I've collected over the years. It gives me another excuse to go back and read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, featuring the most beautiful illustrations that I think have ever accompanied a work of prose literature, possibly ever. And I'll put it up against Gust of Dory, and I'll put it up against whoever you want to put out there. Because to me, it's just the greatest example of work in the medium, and you know, one of the reasons why Wrightson was recognized before there were Eisner Awards with the Shazam Awards and, and other fan favorite types of um, accolades. Um, and if you haven't familiarized yourself yet at this point with the incredible catalog of, of short horror stories, there are many collections that you can get. I can walk to any comic book store. You can go to Amazon. You can type in Bernie Wrightson and quite a few things are going to pop up and you can't go wrong because it's all great stuff. So, um, no, uh, no advertising in the middle of this one, I don't think. We'll see. But uh, join us again next week for more regularly scheduled um, and um, better tidings episode of Podsequentialism. Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism. And um, what many, many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery. And what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole, it's not. Um, you can, if you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Um, whether it's blind box toys or little tchotchkes or art books, it 
pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Check them out and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you.